I'd like for you to turn to the book of Micah. I'll not read the third chapter of Micah uh, for the time, for, because of time limitation. But I am going to talk about it, so I want it there on your, on your lap, if you will, please. A number of years ago, Bill Bright, who is the founder and leader of the Campus Crusade for Christ organization, made a bold prediction. He said, in 15 months, America would be dead. America, he said, has, has 15 months to live. He was talking about the freedoms that we have enjoyed and the things experienced in this country would soon die. Now, Bill Bright was wrong on his timetable. That happened several years ago, as a matter of fact. And uh, I think that for the most part, we would not say that we have witnessed the demise of a nation. But he may be more accurate than we'd like to admit with regard to the prophecy itself. For after all, he was just echoing what politicians and theologians and sociologists have been saying for, for months now, years. And that is that America is plunging toward a head-on collision and all the brakes are out. In 1967, after the death, after the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the President of the United States addressed the nation in its crisis and said, America is not sick. And then he appointed a Blue Ribbon Commission to study what's wrong with America. It's like he was studying the symptoms while denying the illness. Now, if America was sick in 1967, I think there are very many of us would agree that if that were true, then America is critically ill in 1992. In 1985, the amount of money that was spent on the care and the treatment of AIDS as an epidemic was $6 billion in this country. Five years later, in 1991, the cost is $70 billion and skyrocketing. The average child sitting in this room this morning, by the time he is 18 years of age, will have seen 200,000 acts of violence on public television. TV Digest recently ran a survey and found that in an 18-hour period of time, there were 1,846 individual acts of violence on 10 TV channels. The word God can no longer be used in, board, in, the, in the Board of Education uh, material. And a child can no longer pray aloud over his lunch. According to an FBI report, it is estimated that as many as 5,000 murders are committed in the United States by what are called recreational killers. They're people who kill for fun. That is 14 murders a day in America by people who do it for fun. And each one of them said that, they, that pornography fed their desires. And it has been estimated, a, a conservative estimation, that as many as 26 million babies have been killed in America in the last 20 years. I think the symptoms are too great to deny that America is suffering a terminal illness. Historians have looked back to find out something about the nations of the earth, and they found three common denominators or three characteristics of all the nations of civilization. One of those characteristics is 
that every nation, regardless of how pure its conception, every nation has gone corrupt. There is absolutely no nation in civilization that is an exception. It was also found that when spiritual decay sets in in a nation in its historical past, when, historic, when spiritual decay has set in, the majority of the people were unaware of it and the rest were indifferent toward it. And the third characteristic is that all of the nations suffered the same symptoms. Somebody said that the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. But we can learn from history and we must learn from history. And one way to begin is to study the history of the greatest nation conceived in the purity of God and in the grace of God and the mind of God, His nation. And by the time to Micah, this prophet, this nation has fallen lower than any other nation. We can learn from this. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the things written in the Bible were for our example, for our instruction. And there's so much that parallels the nation of, of America as with a nation of God called Israel or Judah in the divided nation. With regard to blessing and origin, there's so much that parallels it. And Micah says, Micah sees that there are three categories of people, three kinds of people, three groups of people that are responsible for the demise of the nation in his day. As a matter of fact, look at verse 12. This is what he says. Therefore, on account of you, and that word therefore points back to what he's been describing. And he's been describing these categories of people there in this chapter. Therefore, he says, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple, the temple mount, will become high places of a forest. Now who are these categories of people? I'd like to find out who they are that is, that is responsible for the death of this great nation of Israel. Well, the first group we fit, we can fit under the title perverting politicians. Perverting politicians. Now read with me verse 9. Now hear this. Heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. Now these heads of Israel and Jacob were the political leaders of the houses of the divided nation, Israel and Judah. And he's saying that these political leaders... We're twisting everything that was straight. And the Revised Standard has it. They pervert the equity. And he starts at the top. And he says, we need to lay the blame for the condition of the nation of Israel at the place where that blame rests first with the political leaders of our time. And he says, these people whom we have entrusted with the authority of our nation, have twisted everything that's straight. He starts at the top. That's where God always starts. 
And when Elijah came into the nation and trouble began because of this prophet, Ahab brought him to his, to his office in essence and said, Elijah, why are you troubling Israel? And Elijah said, I'm not the one who's responsible for the trouble of Israel. We're going to lay the blame where the blame belongs, at the ruler of Israel. Now I need to say something you need to hear. I don't want you to go out of here saying that I'm, I said that all politicians are perverted. I, if you do that, you're not loyal to the truth. It's no more true than some who say that all preachers are corrupt. I resent that. And I, if I were a political leader, I would resent someone saying that political leaders are all corrupt. They are not. And I know some godly men that I respect greatly and cherish their friendship. But the fact is that many of the political leaders of this country are too closely similar to Micah's day to suit us. This is how he describes them. He said, they've turned this land into pestilence. They've spent us into bankruptcy, he said. And he said, they're like cannibals who devour their own people for their own appetites. He said they're like shepherds who instead of guiding their flocks are devouring their flocks. What a description of the political leaders of Micah's day. And he raises a question in verse 1. He said, is it not for you to know justice? And that word know there means to know in a practical sense. And what he's saying is this. Is it not for the political leader to know what's best for us in a practical way? And that person live and enact law and legislation that's best for the country. Is that not why he's there? The other day, the other evening, I was watching Crossfire. These guys get on there and they argue, you know. <laughs> And I, I'm not watching for much for television, but Judge Wapner, when he's on, and, uh, and uh, Crossfire, and football. <laughs> I'm going to be watching. And I was watching Crossfire the other night, and this guy said this. He said, now if President-elect Clinton wants to put his name down in history, he needs to do that. What about this financial struggles that we're in in this land? What about that? Is there a solution? Well, let me tell you, a good place to find, to begin, to start finding those answers is in the Bible and on our knees. And why is it so important that political leaders seek the will of God? Because they're ministers of God. The scripture says that the people that have been placed in places of authority are God's ministers. Therefore, it's important they find out what God's will is. And any decision that a person makes without the counsel of Almighty God is a dangerous decision. I don't care who he is. Now, what's my responsibility? I think I have a responsibility to respect the position of these leaders. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if it's the 
from the president all the way down to school teachers. I think there needs to be a return to some respect for the people in those positions. You watch prime time the other night, it's a scary thing to see what is happening in the school, public school systems of this country. I'm not talking about in the ghettos. I'm talking about in some of the best places in the country. And the reason why, part of the reason why that there is such anarchy in the public schools is because parents don't have the guts to stand up for the teachers. And there needs to be a genuine respect go on for the people who have places of responsibility or of authority because of the position. I'm talking about policemen. I'm talking about teachers. I'm talking about uh, senators and, 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 and the president. He should not be the butt of our jokes. And the men who are elected to be the officials of this country should not be the butt of our profanity. There needs to be a return for some kind of respect for those people. And it needs to be, begin in the homes where that respect has to be taught first. I think the second thing we can do is we can pray for them. Now, I have a nine-point deal here to hand out, to, to give out, and I, I don't have time. I mean, I ran totally out of time in the early service, so I'm not going to do it, but I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I let you out early last Sunday, 10 till. I, I got an extra five minutes. Right? Chapter 2, 1 Timothy, here it says, Here's what it says. First of all, then, I urge that in these and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Paul, you mean we're supposed to pray for kings? That's what I mean. You mean those kings that are throwing my friends to the lions and, and cutting off their heads? Those are the ones. You don't mean that, do you? I mean it. Yeah, I'd like to pray for them. I'd like to pray God would rain down some fire on them. That's how I'd like. That's not what Paul had in mind. And Paul's objective in calling in a call for prayer was not really that you would pray that they'd be saved. That's not even the object of his prayer. His prayer was that we pray for these people of authority because they have such a burden of responsibility and pray that they'd function in the way that would please God and be the best for us. Pray for them. Now, why did he ask us to pray for them? So that we might live a life without fear. picked up the newspaper not long ago and I read about a boy on Halloween. He was an oriental boy. He went to a neighborhood, to a house in a neighborhood nearby to knock on the door. He thought a Halloween party was taking place there. This guy shot him. And the reason he shot him was he said he thought he was an intruder. He said, I live in this neighborhood. He said, we've had so many problems with intruders. He said, I thought the guy's dressed up in a Halloween costume. He said, I, I, was, I was afraid for my life. Carrying a gun around with him. True story, Margot testified of this. When I start into Dallas and start down Central Expressway, you know what I tell my family? Keep your eyes straight ahead. You make somebody mad coming down the expressway, you cut them off, they pull up beside you and shoot you. 
That's a sad, sad thing to have to say. And it's a tragic time that a person can't walk down the streets of the city and feel safe. It's terribly tragic. We live in fear. Now, why do we have to live in fear? Why, who's, why is that true? Well, he said that we're to pray for our leaders so we could live without fear. Is it true? Is it not true? That if we had been faithful to pray like He taught us to pray, we wouldn't have to live in fear. And while you and I are all upset and uptight about the fact that we don't have prayer in public schools anymore, I can save you the worry of that, friend. If you and I had been praying in our homes, we wouldn't be worried about praying in public schools. To pray for our leaders is to guarantee a tranquil and quiet life. All right? Perverting politicians. Second, it's got to get to me here. You thought I wasn't going to talk about it. Pacifying preachers. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore it will be night for you without vision. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths, because there is no answer from God. Pacifying preachers. And what he's saying is, that a part of the condition of this country, the responsibility of it, should be laid right at the foot of this preacher and his colleagues. No prophets. Nobody wants to hear a prophet. Nobody wants to hear a prophet. Prophets are people that downs to build up. They are the people that uproot in order to plant. Nobody wants to hear them. Prophets get in the way. They're like Jeremiah with yokes on their backs. And they get in people's way and they knock off the trinkets that people have on their shelves. Prophets are like physicians that expose ugly wounds in order to, provi to provide medicine for healing. Prophets are people who cause problems by exposing problems in order to cure problems. Nobody wants a prophet around. Nobody wants to listen to bad news. I mean, when you come to church on Sunday... Give me a break. You're saying, I don't want to go up there and listen to bad news. I get enough of that at home. Television, whatever. Nobody wants to declare bad news. I don't. But sometimes, my friend, it just is important to tell the truth. Now these preachers he's talking about have a fourfold ministry. Look at it. There's is a ministry of deceit. He said, as long as they got something to eat, they'll tell you what you want to hear. As long as they can bite on something, as long as they got something in their mouths, they are glad to tell you everything's all right. Somebody said, I don't want to go down to that church down there. I want to go to an upbeat church. I want to go where there's some upbeat stuff going on. 
Warren Wiersbe's got a book entitled The Integrity Crisis, and he said he had a friend one day, and he asked him, he said, why didn't your preacher preach on sin, judgment, repentance, some? He said, nobody wants to hear it. He said, my preacher baits them. That's the way he put it. My preacher baits them with his success sermons. And when he gets them hooked, then we go in the, under the, you know, we go in the background. We are in the background. We go around and see if they understood the demands of the gospel. Baits them. A ministry of deceit. It's a ministry of desire, he said, preachers. They won't, as long as they're getting something, they, they're fine. You don't give them what they want, they declare holy war. It's a ministry of desire. They're in it for the money. It's a ministry of disgrace, he said. They cover their mouths because they haven't heard from God. You know what he's saying? It's a graphic description of a preacher who stands on Sunday morning, doesn't have anything to say because he hadn't heard from God. Tragic day, is it? When a preacher comes into the pulpit and he has no vision to, to, to testify of and he has no word from God to speak. And it's a ministry of death, he said, for what they're doing is bringing about death. There's one last category, and that category is you. Perverting politicians, pacifying preachers, presuming people. Look at what he says in verse 11. Her leaders pronounce a judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. The word lean there means to lie in rest and what he's saying is this, these people presuming upon God say, we're on, God's on our side, nothing's going to happen to us. And they lie in rest upon the Lord. You say, well, I thought that's what we're supposed to do, trust in God. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about presuming upon God. He's saying these people say, in essence, we can live like we want to. We're God's people. He's going to take care of us, protect us. And we think that we can go to church on Sunday and in one hour obliterate all we've done six days of the week. That's presumption. It's a presumption upon His, his presence. Is not the Lord with us? And I remember the old prophet Samson, this man of strength and power, and one day he woke up and God wasn't with him. And I remember reading something in the book of Hosea about the fact that God will withdraw Himself. He means that He will withdraw His presence and His blessing. It is a fact, my friend, that a person or a nation or a church can wake up one day and God withdraws His presence and His conscious presence and His visible blessing. You can't presume upon His presence. God never goes where sin is uncontested. Second, they presumed upon His protection. They said, God will protect us. It reminds me of the words of our Lord when He said, You have made my house 
A house of prayer you have made, a den of robbers. You know what a robber's den is? A robber's den is where robbers run for protection. And so we run to the church on Sunday morning to be protected. It's a presumption upon our protection, upon God's protection. Now in five minutes, I want to suggest what we can do. I don't think you ought to ever try to bring a prophetic word without some kind of a closure or solution. What can we do? I think we can start we can start prayer. We can begin to pray. I have a, an opinion about how to pray for political leaders and if you're that interested, somebody said I want a manuscript of this sermon who heard it in the early service. I think there is a way to political leaders where you may be specific. And if you're interested in that, I'll help you find out what that is. We can begin to pray for them. I've alluded to that already. We can get involved. We can get involved. I think we need to get involved in the things that relate to our community. And I've made a commitment to become more involved in political action. Not to get up here on Sunday and promote some politician, not that. But to become involved in what is going on at the decision-making level in my community. I'm, I've made a commitment to that. Whether it's just going to board meetings or, or, or going to city council meetings or whatever it is. To show some support to these people that are doing what, you know, what's best for us. You can financially support them. There's some people in this city who, who are doing great jobs and in our community and in our, in, our, in, our, in our nation. They need our support, financial support. Those are the kinds of things. But I want to talk to you a little bit about something that may be a little more uh, nebulous. And that is what um, um, Colson calls a, a more imagination a moral imagination. He talks about the developing of a moral imagination. It's what he means. It begins with an awe and a respect and an appreciation for order. Now let me tell you what that means. It means to develop a sense of awe and respect for Almighty God. He's our God. He's our master. He's our king. He's our Lord. And in taking for granted the things that have been ours in abundance, I mean the beautiful, even the beautiful leaves that are just in the streets in this marvelous little community, to, to, to develop a sense, work at it, a sense of awe and, and reverence of the God who made us and who, who, is, who rules and runs like these people sang so beautifully about. He's the value of tradition. Jeremiah said we need to return to ancient We need to begin to develop some visions. I, one thing I've tried to do as a pastor is just to, to, to develop in here with us tradition that, that connects us to the past. Do that in your homes. Begin to develop traditions you can cling to for the rest of your life and your children, their children. It sees the value of the family. What is more important than your family? And if there is anything that tears you away from them and time put it to them, it's not worth it. Return to a sense of the, of the family. And you kids, when you go home this, this week on the holidays, be sure that you put out your arm around my dad. Just let them know how important they are to you. And I know you'll do that. 
sees the value of pity and it re and, and responds with duty and commitment and obligation duty and commitment obligation it means that i make a commitment and, and i i sense my obligation to those things that are important do you think this church makes any difference in unity i mean i mean you could at least nod your head i mean do you think this church makes any difference in this community yeah, of course it does this church makes a vital difference in community. And if you really bet, you that, you need to make a commitment to it. Too much of what is being done in the church is being done by too few. And we have an obligation to these wonderful people who are trying to lead us in this church and in this community, public school system and in our university. And we need to, get, we need to make a commitment to them and to what they're about. It's a sense of duty and obligation. And if you're not, if you aren't fulfilling your responsibility and your commitment and your duty and obligation to the institutions that are important, then you don't have a right to complain. Now, there are three things that are involved in this, and I'm through. Number one, we need to reassert a sense, shared destiny. Robert Bella was when he said, Life is more, life is not a race whose only goal is being forced. I love that statement. Life is not a race whose only goal is being foremost. What thing is that life is more than just being number one, getting ahead of the Joneses. Life is more than that. Life is more than a race to see who can get to the... And if you get to the top in your vocation, business, or whatever it is, if you make it top and you leave the past littered, the road littered with people that are vital and important, you a last place finisher, in my opinion. You haven't won. There's a sense of shared destiny. We're in this thing together. People who suffer in this world, whether they be home or whatever, we share in their destiny. Number two, we need to adopt a balanced view of the inherent dignity of human life. Let me say this, and I want you to hear this. Any view or philosophy of life that has disregard for elderly and the handicapped, whether it's physical or financial handicap, or a disregard for the unborn, is a sure sign of cultural disintegration. And finally, we need to recover a respect history. Now we can throw off everything happened and say, "Hey, we're we're the we're the we're the we're the we're the up and coming. So we don't need it, you know, that kind of thing." Let me tell Heaven chalked the way that brought us, and if we neglect. To see our connectedness, what has gone on in our history, freedom, etc. If we fail to see that connectedness, we've the ultimate blasphemy. For what you are to what I am today, we owe to so many people. The names are plowed in balls of this church. And the Frightening prospect, as Micah said, 
that a nation that forgets God is a nation that will be plowed under. Our Father, come to a time in the history of our nation and a time in the calendar of the year when we reflect Give us a grateful heart. Help us to see we cannot dehistorize ourselves. And that we are a part of all that has gone before us. And be grateful. And may it be a motivation to do what is right and just and good, regardless of the cost. And restore in us, Father, a sense of duty and obligation to the plan and the program and the purpose of God. For I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. I'm going to ask you today to uh, consider these invitations. You may need to come this morning and place your faith in Jesus Christ. The greatest thing that's ever happened in this whole world took place at Calvary 2,000 years ago when Jesus paid the price for your sin. And He offers you eternal salvation as a free gift to be appropriated by your faith and trust, repentance from sin. And maybe you need to come this morning to rededicate yourself to the common good or to join this church to become a part of something I'm committed to and I believe is worthwhile, and that's the ministry of the First Baptist Church in Durant. I have never been a place I love more. And I'm not ashamed nor embarrassed to call you to come and be a part of what's happening here with these wonderful men who are part of this staff and the volunteers who labor here in this church. And so we invite you to come this morning on invitation as we stand to sing.